I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. So, Lynn, I thought I had to introduce you, and in fact, that's been done very well. But there was one thing I wanted to say about you, apart from the fact that I think you said downstairs I'd known you for 40 years. We've known each other for 40 years. I don't think that's quite right, Lynn. But anyway, we've known each other for a long time, and I've read all your books, know a lot about your work. And the thing about your work, and you agreed with me when I described it in this way, is that you have mixed kind of activism and academic life in a particular way, which we may come back to. But your work, all your books seem to me to have taken a particular problem within feminism or the left at a particular time and addressed it. So it's a bit like you woke up in the middle of the night worrying about why essentialist feminism, this is your earlier work, why it was dominating feminist discourse, so you wrote a book about it. Then you worried about masculinity and you wrote a book about that heterosexuality, you wrote a book about that. Then you just went into a little bit of a memoir, mm-hmm. uh, Making Trouble, which um, a great book, which I think, think I reviewed. So now we're on to radical happiness. And I want to, I've read it twice, as I said to you, and I want to talk to you about the many, many themes within it. Before I ask you to start talking, two points I think it's important for the audience to know. The first is it's an incredibly meaty book. There's so many things that you explore within it. And I think one of the ways I characterize your books is you pick up a problem and you sort of turn it and look at it from every single angle and you go back into history. So there's quite a lot of chapters that begin, what did Plato say about melancholy? What did Aristotle say about joy? So we won't be able to get to all the themes. And the other thing is, without spoiling the ending of the book, I think it's fair to say that you really argue your belief is that happiness lies in the collective and in being with others and so although you talk quite a lot about sexuality and love and so on that's your end point you'd agree with that you're going to have a lot more I'll agree then. with you for now you, for now okay for now that's a, I think we can hear that there'll be something coming up there um, so you start with a real ferocious criticism of the happiness industry And it's almost like that's your starting point. I really don't like this. And I wondered, can you, what's wrong with the happiness industry? What's wrong with trying to help people to be more mindful, be more calm? Well, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with it. 
I want everybody to be happier all the time, but there is a problem with thinking that happiness is some internal quantifiable state and that we know what we're doing and what, why we're doing it when we're measuring happiness. And that's where the problems start for various reasons. One, I don't think it, it is at all clear what's being measured because I think how we feel is always how we are in the world, the extent to which we can be recognized and get esteem and certain status in the world, which most people are not getting at the moment. It's also um, not a single unambivalent thing because what makes us happy, what makes us joyful is usually what also makes us vulnerable, what makes us vulnerable to loss, to the pain of others. So whenever outside the social, and so anything that... Um, is measuring and dealing with people individually is something I always think, what's going on here? Let's open this out. Let's think about our relation to the world and how we only become who we are, you know, through the recognition and acceptance of others. But there are a couple of other things I'll say very quickly, and that is um, that it can become a type of social control and has in certain jobs, in, in many jobs actually, particularly those where you're serving the public like Pret a Manger, you have to serve them with a smile. You have to have a smile, which is why people like Barbara Ehrenreich wrote her book, Smile or Die. You know, you might be get a diagnosis of cancer, but you're not going to beat this thing unless you accept it and keep smiling. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it can definitely become coercive and people can literally lose their jobs for not having the right attitude and not showing the right face to the world, even when they've got every reason in their precarious jobs to feel rather unhappy and threatened. And then also it's what it pushes aside and that it encourages to blame ourselves for failure. So you know, I'm all for people getting help to feel cheerful. I've got, in a sense, nothing against any of the forms of therapy that try to make people feel happier. But I do want to say how we feel is very much also determined by our positions in the world, and there's correlations yeah. with that. But I just wanted to make one last thing. It's what it pushes aside, which is how bloody unhappy and miserable and lonely most people are much of the time. It's what George Monbiot and so many people, it's what all the statistics show and at ever younger ages. And so, and so it seems that it's trying to cover up and push aside something which we also know, as well as all those fears we have of the future. How, how would we, how could we express that? I mean, how could official narratives tell us that we were miserable and depressed, if you see what I mean? <laughs> I mean, even if that's true, I don't know whether most people are miserable most of the time. It, it kind of makes sense. I'm not sure. And we can, perhaps people can ask questions about that. Mm. But, you know, what, what would that mean to say that more publicly, right. if that's a yeah. fair question? By the way, it does make sense. We are also reading all the time when we're not reading comparisons between countries as to how happy we are. Um, we are being told about the levels of depression amongst young people. Yeah, and yeah no, no, we are. That's true. Yeah. But I think it's, um, you know, I quote a lot, Blake, joy and, wo joy and woe are woven fine. And, you know, one doesn't come without the other. It's understanding that, um, you know, life... To, to live it in a full and rich way, it's got to be able to see that um, uh, our lives are entangled with others and with the sorrows of others, with, with all the things that we see going wrong in the world. And so how do we find a way of dealing with that as well as finding the resilience to keep going? And 
for me, as I think we'll be getting on to more, it is being able to join our lives to those of others, see ourselves as part of trying to create you know, a good life, a good world, even though we see all the difficulties of that. So just to press you just a little more on that question of um, how much we accept melancholy as part of life, there is a lot of talk about mental health now, isn't there? People, you know, there's a lot of recognition of it, a lot of discussion. It doesn't necessarily get carried through into government policy in any way or resources, which is something you talk a lot about. I mean, you do talk about money and resources as an important part of the of ideas. But do you not recognise something has changed there? I'd like to think it's changed. I, I don't think nearly enough resources goes into no, but the mental discussion health care. of mental health. There's a discussion of it, but it's still very much seen as an individual phenomenon rather than the reasons to do with you know, precarious jobs, lack of housing, the, the sense of failure and isolation that so many people have. I, I want to see that being discussed. I want to see social issues being discussed at the very same time as we're discuss, discussing the problems of mental health. And, and I don't see that. I mean, interestingly, the happiness czar, Richard Layard, yeah. Layard was actually did his original work on depression. And he said depression is something which is causing us, you know, is, is costing us millions of pounds. We have to deal with it. But we have to deal with it in his, his, his reports on people individually finding out how to find ways through CBT is what he wants funded to um, change their attitudes, change how they see themselves and so on. And yet he is, un, is not focusing on what someone like Michael Marmot focuses on, which is the social background to all this. I want to see that discussed at the same time. You yeah. know, how are we going to improve how housing stock? How, are, how is the government actually going to take responsibility for creating more jobs and better jobs and and so yeah. on. Well, we will come on to the fact that politics has shifted a bit and there are people in the mainstream like Jeremy Corbyn talking about that now. Um, and I think it's worth saying that in studies about how happy or not happy the British are, that we are the lowest in the Europe, European index. Isn't that true? On many things, actually. Yeah. Sadly, on many things. <laughs> yes, at the moment, yeah. we are. Um, and what, what do you think Worldwide, about... we're about 50%, I think. Okay. So CBT... You know, um, one of the things that Layard said was that we should think about emotions in terms of gross domestic product. That was one of the ways that he sold the idea to, to Tony Blair. And that's something that um, actually David Cameron took yes. forward, didn't he? And yes. in fact, David Cameron argued that Brexit, the vote that finished off his political career, was a vote, uh, an expression of collective unhappiness. So it was a bit of a Lynn Siegel argument there, actually. Um, yeah, a bit late. But... Yeah, yeah, a bit late. Um, but, yeah, the idea of, of emotions contributing to GDP is something that you and I would be quite cynical about, wouldn't we? But also in terms of resources, a lot of money going into cognitive behaviour therapy rather than other forms of therapy. I think that's a wrong turn. You do too? Yes. I mean, the whole discussion of GDP is problematic because our well-being and our sense of leading useful and good lives depends on something that usually isn't counted, all the externalities to GDP, to, um, uh, to growth, which is to do with education and health and, and housing, all the things that actually can allow us to have the time and space to care for each other, to 
create um, flourishing communities and so on. That's the sort of thing we talked about all the yeah. time in the 70s. Yeah. And this just isn't factored in at all to the latest discussion on happiness and GDP. That, yeah. that, so we have to wi far widen what we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think they sort of know it. They, people, people do say, well, you feel happy if you help other people. You do some voluntary work. But it's still like you have to think of what to do yourself. It's, it's not thinking collectively with others, which uh, some people have said, you know, happiness and depression, these are all as much social as individual mm. factors if we think it's about how we can exist in the world in relation to others and get something back from others, give something to others. That's what's so hard to get into that vocabulary of. But, but you're absolutely right that in political discourse, that would be discussed in terms of voluntary work, religion, but it wouldn't be discussed in terms of what you might call a 60s and 70s paradigm or the Corbyn paradigm, which is it's the houses we live in, it's the schools we go to. And so that's that's the difference there, isn't it? Yes, it's the bullshit jobs we're doing, David Graeber yeah. would say, is that we don't have time to actually um, try and feel that together we can create a better world. Yeah. You know, in the moment of great joy, which we had in the early 70s as feminism, bounces onto the Well, scene. I want to ask you about that, <laughs> yes, how much yes. you loved that moment <laughs> in feminism. Uh, we'll come on to that. Um, you do have chapters on love and desire. And um, it, 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 it's quite downbeat, the one on love, if I may oh, say so. So you, talk, you, know, you have Chris Daver, Lacan, um, Judith Butler. Uh, there's a lot about the impossibility of love. And there's a fantastic quote from Slavo Žižek, which is that love <laughs> is trying to give something you don't have to someone who doesn't want it. But, but my view is that says, more about, that says more about Slavo Žižek's love life, I think, than it does about love. Because then the... the, the <laughs> I won't say anything more about him because he may be a regular at the bookshop. But, um, you, but you bring a mature reflection to the question of individual love. There's a lot about romantic love in our culture, isn't it? That's a given. Yes. And you... Pick that apart. So do you I want to pick it apart sorry. a bit for us? Yeah. Yes, I have two chapters on love. Yeah, I know. Well, one I couldn't yeah. fit it into one, and, and my excellent editor said this will have to be two chapters. So um, there's the perils of desire, which yeah. I notice is an overlap with my previous book yeah. on old age, on ageing, the pleasures and perils of ageing. I have one called the perils of desire there. Leo didn't notice, and nor did I until recently. Well, perils is not. You could use the word peril twice. <laughs> the same chapter heading. Uh, and then oh, right, there's I the see. truth about love. Yeah, okay. And I'll tell you who doesn't tell us the truth about love. Who? Slavoj Žižek. Yeah. So I'm a I big critic. I think we've critic. agreed that tonight. I'm a big critic of Žižek. Um, you know, we used to say in the 70s, you, you begin sinking into his arms and yeah. end with his arms in the no, sink. With your, your arms. arms, your arms no, his arms nowhere near Not the his sink. arms. Of course, the world's, have changed, the world's changed completely since we said then. But nevertheless, we know that the one thing that is supposed to still you know, give us all we want in life is that you know, romantic ending, the happy ending. Cinderella marries her prince. And we're all cynical about it, but it's still there. It, and really what I'm saying is... Um, First of all, it addresses women, particularly. You know, the Israeli sociologist Eva Ilutz says a lot about that. It's still women in particular that are meant to 
carry most of the labours of love, you know, to, to um, uh, not feel complete at all unless they do have uh, an enduring long-term relationship, unless they can be creating happy families. And this is a lot of pressure on women in an age which commit, it, uh, long-term commitment is very hard to sustain mm. for all sorts of different reasons. So we need to be wary about it. But actually, I'm not wary about love. I want to expand what we're talking about when we're talking about love and the different sorts of loving relationships we have, which isn't in any way to undermine some single long-term enduring love, but it's to say there has to be a lot more than that around. Yeah, because I have to say, reading it, not as a Daily Mail reader, because I'm not a Daily Mail reader, but a sort of, you know, um, Middle England reader, I did wonder if you underestimate the sort of ordinary lives where people do partner up, they do put up with a lot of crap, they do care for their partner in the end, and it is largely women. You are, and you're very frank about it, you're coming from a generation that questioned everything, that in a sense rearranged cultural and other norms, and so you might all have had slightly different experiences than that Middle England one. Does that make sense to you? It's not to necessarily uphold the Middle yeah, England. Um... But I don't think that I'm trying to demolish. Uh, I didn't say demolish. I said relationships, or say that they're um, not something that um, we desire and can find happiness in. I'm saying the pressure, the pressure on us for that to be the only solution, and to think that um, that will give us all that we want. You know, to put all our eggs in that basket, as yeah. they say. That 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 is what I'm querying. So you. I know you've written in previous books and you touch on it here, you know, your period, your younger years where not only were you a very active feminist, but you lived in collectives and tried out different ways of living, which you discuss in this book. And you, you're very interesting in talking about how those are beginning to return in the context of anti-austerity politics in Spain. And I mean, that's absolutely, there's a lot of hope in your book, just in case anybody's feeling that there, there isn't. Do you see that returning, particularly the new ways of living and not just going down the partnership route, whether it's heterosexual or otherwise? No, I, I think that I try not to ever be didactic or to tell people how they should no, no, live. And there got, were all no. sorts of problems that, you know, they, it's hard to make alternative ways of living last. It's very hard to raise children and, and, and to keep commitment and responsibility in alternative social structures which aren't being supported in general. So so I, I don't think it's easy. There's also all sorts of competitiveness and conflicts that arise within us. I mean, another problem with happiness is the idea that um, uh, we know exactly what we want and how we feel and that everything is always more contradictory and more conflict-ridden than usually um, people would like to think or certainly what we're told in... in um, the media. So um, uh, I'm, I, I, I don't say we, sh we can go back to how we lived before. I don't think that was necessarily successful but, or, or long-lasting. Most of them didn't endure, actually. But I think it is the idea of sharing and caring and caring, sharing and relating well, to that's others what I'm and saying. more mutuality. Can you see modern forms of that? You can never go back to previous forms. I mean, mm -hmm. Sheila Robotson, mm -hmm. your friend and peer, mm -hmm. has written about ideas of communal living from earlier in the 19th and early 20th century. You talk a lot about that experience, 60s and 70s. It would be, I mean, I think a lot of people would recognise that. 
bringing up children, sharing lives in a more communal way is something that would still have resonance. I think that's really what I'm asking. Yes, it's not just bringing up children. I mean, we're, just we're living, living into, <laughs> into older and older ages and more and more people are going to end up living on their own, particularly women, because we live slightly longer and because we're, for various reasons we end up on our own. So, again, some way of forming not necessarily collectives where we all live together, but houses that connect together, spaces yeah. that connect. You know, diff thinking of housing in a different way, that does seem to me very important. And you are finding that happen, aren't you? Particularly mm. with older women, that yeah. they are there yes. are housing co-ops yes, that are, are starting attempts. where people mm. try to, and that, you know, that would be something yes. that would be very much in the Siegel playbook. If Except we can call unfortunately, such a thing. you usually have to have quite a few resources. So yeah. it's only quite yeah. middle-class women who can manage to create these um, more community resources where each of them can own a share of a house and so on. Yeah. Very interesting, very important, but it's going to be outside the resources of most people, and, and unless there is some government policy to try yeah. and create more of these spaces. Which I, which I could see a Corbyn-led government being keen on. <laughs> That's a nice thought. Yeah, was that your, I, thought, I, thought you were, I suddenly thought, is there somebody from a Corbyn-led government in the audience? I don't think. Can we just touch on sexuality? Because it seems to me that is where there is quite a lot of good news if you take your historical frame. So if you look at the, you know, the work of Dora Russell amazing pioneer for birth control. Mary Stokes, who is a, 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 an ambivalent figure because of her link possibly to in, eugenics, but just wanted to show women about sexual pleasure, share height. You know, if you look through feminism, second wave feminism, there was a real discovery, wasn't there, and publicising of what might really give women sexual pleasure rather than patriarchal norms. Two questions. Do you agree with me? And do you think we still move forward on that? Is there still happiness? Are we a more sexually happy... Um, well, I was, was going to say gender, but that's a complicated term in itself. But are we... You know, you know what I'm trying to say. Well, I think that um, that's hard to answer. I would like to think there's less sexual guilt around, but I don't know that it's more possible... I don't know that it's easier for us to form these... Um, relationships where we're going to feel fulfilled within them in a way that then you know, makes what I, what I think love is about. And, and sex is another thing, actually. Sex is much more complicated and there might be all sorts of... More complicated of, um, than love. Than love, yes. Right. I mean, because, you know, the need to control hostility, all sorts of things get tied in with what actually um, arouses sexual passion, as we know from what's going on at the moment. Um, mm. But... Um, but I see love as what enables us to simply feel more at home with ourselves. There are people who know us. There are people you know, who, who we share common things with, who can just make us feel more grounded and meaningful to ourselves. And, and um, that's what seems to me important. So while it's true that having hopefully a lowering of sexual guilt and shame across the board, including for... Um, gays and lesbians and trans and other people. Mm. That's important. But we still have to have the space to be able to um, create those living structures and those communities where you know, we, we, we can feel together in the world that we're able to do what we want to do. And I think a lot of people are feeling isolated and powerless and lonely, as I said, um, Mombio said. Um, that whether or not we're having some sexual pleasure, 
won't necessarily enable us to yeah. have this sense of well, full that, satisfaction. That's a very clear argument. And also, it's not just sexual pleasure, is it, which I think has improved women's access knowledge, yes, but there's I a lot more sexual pressure, yes. which, I mean, I think we probably have to leave as a point because otherwise we'll be on it the whole time. I do want to ask you about the rise of the medicalization of depression and the fascinating bit in your book where you compare that with the rise in the pharmaceutical um, industry's involvement. So that you, I think within 10 years, doctors were now describing what would have been previously a bit of melancholy or hysteria as depression, and in come Prozac and all these um, drugs yes. to treat. So it's, there's some mixing of ideology and industry there that you write very well, well it, about. Well, it is interesting, isn't it, that the, you know, where the happiness industry is at its height and CBT and self-help and therapy is most encouraged is also overwhelmingly where most people are on antidepressants. So one in four women in their 40s and 50s are on antidepressants. And, and, but not only... Uh, women, middle-aged women, children, you more and more children. One in ten on children over six that's are on right, antidepressants. That's right. And so I think that is terribly worrying and yeah. does as well go along with this individualization. We know we've got to get to this problem of why this person isn't smiling all the time and happy and doing well at school. There's something the matter with them. We've got to start treating them. And that seems very dangerous and, and has to be dangerous because... Because it's not solving the problem. The problem keeps mushrooming. It keeps increasing. So it, it, the idea that it's the solution, you know, rather than in some way connected to what is the problem seems we have to consider. Just thinking about somebody who might be given antidepressants when they don't need them, because one can argue about times of crisis it might be helpful. What's needed there then is something we're short of as well, which is time and care, either in a public setting or a private setting, isn't it? Just yes. attention. I think, I think I have to be care, clear to say I'm not against medical treatment right. for depression. I'm not even against any particular form of therapy unless we think it's abusive. Um, but I am against not setting that in a social context in which we're asking why are so many people depressed? Why is there so much stress and anxiety around? And you know, and when I did read about the drugs, it it, it is worrying. Mm. You know, because most of the antidepressant drugs and the and the uh, mood stabilizers, which they say is dependent upon um, fixing some chemical imbalance, well, there there actually isn't any evidence for chemical imbalance. That that you know, and narratives get told for which there aren't evidence. You, you, nor do we hear that seventy percent of their experiments seem to. Um, correlate with the effect of placebos. So that, you know, there, there are worries. I mean, placebos can be effective, but we just do need to think more carefully about what we're doing. There's definitely a narrative, I hear it in personal and public life, about chemical imbalance. There's no mm -hmm. question about it. And people will say, but it's well, not it? about context. <laughs> it's not about the context of my life. It's, it's chemical imbalance. So you're arguing against that, I think, is, is a useful counterbalance to that. Just before we come on to politics, which I'm particularly interested in, I'm interested in it all, you do have a, a very interesting section about how the sort of, what, I think it's what one writer you quote calls acts of collective effervescence, yes. carnivals, festivals, um, sort of 
collective expressions of joy have declined over the centuries. And, that's, and I mean, I was wondering, are we left with the Notting Hill Carnival or um, that fireworks thing in Lewis, you know? But, but there is a, you very well pinpoint that official bodies are very nervous of those things. So do you want to tell us a bit why? Yes, that... well, I, I begin by saying, as I do early on in my book, that although we hear so much about happiness and how to treat and deal with happiness, we hear very little about joy. And mm. that's what Potke, writing his story of joy, tells us. It's in particular what Barbara Ehrenreich writes about when she does her run-through um, uh, uh, moments of celebration and festivities called dancing in the street. But of course, it's also what those sociologists, all the fathers of sociology talked about, like Weber with, um, um, what's it called, the Protestant ethic and the yeah. rise yeah. of capitalism. He points out that the individualism that comes in with capitalism, the, the um, um, uh, need for all individuals to be working as hard as possible to um, you know, make... Uh, to build the markets and, and survive under the markets um, is something which is quite against the type of collective spirit that was being celebrated. You could see celebrated, particularly amongst the working class, but not only the working class, up until the middle, the late Middle Ages and, and, and early modernity. And so so it was in particular joy was tied in with religion, with celebrations that happened in um, uh, times of religious holidays such as Lent, unless it was Purim if you were Jewish, but that's a, um, time to go into that. But um, uh, And why there was hostility towards those in the West is that these carnivals were often, as Bakhtin talks about, you know, the overturning of everyday order. And so, you know, women dressed as men and vice versa and, and, and you could be rude to your superiors and you could, you know, you could, you were marshed up and could do what you like and, and, you know, there was lots of carnality and other things that were going on and drunkenness, of course, yeah. and, and uh, erotic activity. And um, uh, these were just not what the, um, um, either the spirit of Protestantism or the growth of capitalism were to be about. And, and they got seriously yeah. and consistently stamped out and you know, seen as inferior and something yeah. that we don't want. Um, yeah, I, I, I was thinking about yeah. Notting Hill Carnival because every year there is a debate about Notting Hill Carnival that at some level taps into all these anxieties. Mm. I mean, mm. that, that, that it can't be controlled, that it's people drinking and enjoying themselves in a disordered way. And that just really resonated with me. But the other thing that I thought was about, do, do you think political demonstrations, particularly the rise in the last few years, people take to the streets? I mean, they always have, or maybe I've been aware of it because I've always been one of those people on a demonstration, but, you know, that, that's got an element of disorder in it. It doesn't have carnality and erotic excitement, well, unfortunately, unless well, I'm, I'm going to the wrong demonstrations. <laughs> Certainly, I have to say, that's not been my experience. Come and tell me later if it's been yours, and I'll join the group that you're in. But, um, but, it, but, but that, that same, you, you mentioned in the book, you know, the day after Trump was inaugurated, we all were so depressed about, I mean, Trump is still the most depressing thing to have happened. Well, I think actually, no, I mean, just, in so many levels and actually on this sexual harassment scandal that a man who has actually admitted that he sexually assaults women being elected the leader of the most powerful is just it's just extraordinary to me mm -hmm. but the day after I think a lot of us I know that some people here were on the streets it was a beautiful day 
it, and it, all over the world when we were on the streets. That was collective effervescence in the face of... Well, absolutely. By the way, collective effervescence is Durkheim's word. Right. So while Weber was being very depressed about um, Protestantism and capitalism, um, uh, Durkheim was looking outside the West and saying, well, you can see how these festivities and, and celebrations are essential to create solidarity and, and uh, a sense of belonging in communities. But, you know, that can have a downside as well. But yeah. he was celebrating that, but not finding it in the West. And the West was increasingly more and more negating and scorning, yeah. you know, the um, uh, non-Western celebrations, you know, like Joseph Conrad and Heart of Darkness, you know, these mad people yeah. bouncing around, you know, are they really human? The worst thought might be that they really are human and that we have some connection to them. Yes, I do think that um, my title, you see, you didn't ask me about my title Well, yet. I think uh, I didn't have to ask you about your title because it's on the book. <laughs> radical happiness, moments of collective joy. It actually comes from Hannah Arendt talking about oh. public happiness in which she says that um, you know, whether we're happy or unhappy at home, she doesn't think we can be truly happy unless we can have a sense of ourselves out there in the world as some sort of agency in the world. And she links it to ideas of proper democracy in which we feel you know, we can have say, some say in our lives and our societies. And that's what Adrienne Rich takes up as well, talking about when she has felt most connected, most, you know, most ecstatic, really, was, uh, she says, when Pinochet falls in Chile and she's reading her poetry or when she went to um, um, the anti-corporate globalisation movement when it started up in the 90s and everybody is there just so happy to be together. And that's, I think, what you're talking yeah. about a few days after Trump is elected. We are just so happy to know, well, you know, not everybody supported Trump. Not everybody is a racist and a sexist and, and only concerned with secretly increasing our, their own wealth. And that's what we were celebrating. And that's what actually, particularly why the feminist movement has revived in, in, in taking to the streets, whether it's been in slut walks, whether it's been um, in um, uh, women against the cuts, often women fighting violence in the home or... Um, um, in all sorts of places around the world, we have seen within movements, within you know, those moments when we come together, even in bad times, just feeling this sense of solidarity yeah. and sense of hope. Well, because that, 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 that's just... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Let's finish on politics before we open it to questions. I mean, you are, and I say it in the, it's the, the, the best way, you're a woman of your time. <laughs> yes. And um, you've, you've kept up with your times. You know, you're always <laughs> developing. But you, I, I just have this sense whenever I read you, this moment that you say that you were so happy for you feminism of that first well second wave technically was a period of tremendous <laughs> happiness for you now i think that probably a lot of people wouldn't have had that experience so you know politics it's just this idea of politics being a place of solidarity and joy rather than a place of division and difficulty and misery but but we can part that because you're you're going for the solidarity and and, and joy answer but um yeah, I wonder if you just say a bit more about that. You've touched on it, that you see it now returning with the rise of social movements. You know, it isn't just here, is it? It was Occupy. It's uh, what's happened in Greece, in Spain, and, you know, um, the amazing elections of radical women as mayors and so on. We are in a new period. And do you see that spirit linking? Well, the two? I, I don't quite agree with you that I um, have not seen the downside. I'm sure you have, Lynn. No. Moments and written about them yeah. too, in fact, more than um, many other <coughs> feminists sometimes celebrating the second wave. I do think that um, for all our sense of belonging, there are people who feel excluded. For all our high moments, it always goes with low moments and those times when we feel that we've failed, when we know we, although we've achieved something, although, although um, second wave feminists really did, as you say, not only change sexuality, but change notions of violence. You know, we... In many ways, we've created um, greater, greater autonomy for women, and and we have women out there in the workforce. But often, when they don't want to be in the workforce for the long hours, they are. So the downside is how then you factor in all the new hierarchies that become entrenched along class, race. Um, um, lately, of course, migration and the movements of people around the world. So there's there's always a downside, but Within that, it seems to me, there are still always possibilities for people like us who see our own lives connected to, in some way, to the lives of others, for trying to look out for resources for hope, as Raymond Williams said, for trying to find those spaces of resistance. So I think mine's a sort of overarching point that you, you, you came to adulthood, or you were in that period of the 60s and 70s, and it wasn't just feminism because it was also uh, it was the radical left. Then there was a long period where I think you would say, we would say the left was in uh, retreat, if not despair. You mention in the book that a lot of feminists like yourself were in academia. And, you know, we've met many times over that period. It felt like there wasn't really, you know, Thatcherism had won, Blairism was another version of a kind of neoliberal narrative, blah, blah. It's different now, isn't it? Yes. It is different. So I want to end on a hopeful well, note. I... There's radical happiness in this era. You're, you're going to be very cautious. <laughs> There's always a potential for radically happy, happy moments. As, as Brett said, what happens in the dark times? Well, there will still be joy in dark times. There'll be joy in talking about those dark times. And, and um, 
you know, we weren't just defeated, but the the whole ideological and structural changes that we've seen yeah. are so bad for anyone concerned with the well-being of all, you know, that, that increasing inequality, the, you know, the rise of racism, of nationalism, of the right is, is so terribly destructive that, you know, it seems to me we can't get up and out of bed unless we say, but that's not all there is, you know, that's not all there is. And there have been these other moments. Mm. We saw these other moments after 2008 when first in December 2010 and we had the Arab Spring, which finally gets defeated, but was terribly important while it was happening, or the Occupy movements of 2011. Where, and when people engage in this, although they're likely to be defeated one way and another, it does change our consciousness. Yeah. It does change our way of relating to other people. And that often does continue throughout time, which is why we're all here, I think. Yes, we are. I was just thinking about that wonderful film, We Are Many, about the uh, demonstrations against the Iraq war in 2003. Now, of course, mm -hmm. the Iraq war went ahead and you could have said that it was mm -hmm. defeated, but mm -hmm. actually that was a seed for a lot of things that happened after, mm -hmm. including That's the it. Arab mm -hmm. Spring and so mm -hmm. on. So you're absolutely mm -hmm. right. There's no mm -hmm. sort of complete darkness, mm -hmm. complete joy. But it just feels like a different mm -hmm. time, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I'm so. To... What David Graeber says, uh, an anarchist who I don't always agree with, an anarchist anthropologist, but he does say that you don't, know what you meet, what you win at any moment, because most yeah. radical and revolutionary moments are defeated. But nevertheless, they often set in train things which do have long-term effects, if we think about the French Revolution and so on. Now, I did read Andy Beckett, as perhaps a number of you did, about the wilderness years, and it is, you know, it is so extraordinary and unpredictable what has happened with the Labour Party and that, you know, movement politics is now all rushed into the Labour Party trying to bring their ideas in. What I don't know is if and when um, uh, the new Labour new Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, I don't and think Donald, we should call it new uh, elected. Labour. Sorry, the new <laughs> la the Labour Party as it is now, the movement-driven Labour Party gets elected. What they can do is another question. You know, how we're going to stop the rush on the pound? How we're going to yeah. actually do the things that we want to do? But just working out what do we want? What are the policies we want around health, well, the education, very fact that, yeah. industry? The That's very fact you, you use the word we in relation to the Labour Party mm. is a sign that something has shifted. Now, this is my favourite, this is my mastermind subject, my favourite subject of all time, but I do actually have to now open, the, <laughs> the, open us up to questions on the general theme of happiness. Thank you very much. Fascinating. Um, sometimes when we're thinking about well-being, perhaps another word for mm. happiness, um, we talk about losing ourselves. Mm. Um, or finding ourselves through losing ourselves and so on. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that idea of doing something which actually is not social but is in the zone. Mm -hmm. um, it might be baking bread or I don't know what it is. But oh, oh, can I answer that question very quickly? No. I just, no, no. I'm not going to answer it. I no, 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 no. There's something I really want to say that is a sentence, which was that while I was reading your book, I watched that Jacqueline Dupre died 50 years ago uh, last week, and there was the most fantastic film about her, and there was her playing yes. Schubert's The mm. Trout with Ixat Thalman and Daniel Bramber, mm. and the happiness of collective music making. I've said it yes. now, over yes. to you. Um, you know, I've got nothing at all against solitude or the joys that we have on our own, but I think when that is happening, we're never outside of society, you know, and those who are actually in a position to be able to... Um, uh, 
have even the time for listening to music, to go dancing, to, to walk into the Arctic Circle, you know, where they feel most alone, most oceanic in touch with the world. There's a whole lot of other things that are supporting them and enabling them to do that. So, you know, I, I think solitary pleasure is a wonderful thing, but we, we should understand that we're not really solitary beings. And I also think that for joy to linger and last, it is something that it's nice to share with other people. You know, what Auden says is when we're most happy, everyone wishes they had a tail to wag. You know, the joys that we can share with others um, uh, are going to be the last, last longest and the joys that we can't are going to disappear fastest, actually. Does that answer it? Hi, thanks, Lynn. All the time you were both talking, I was just thinking, neoliberalism, the internet, what's changed since the 70s? And, you know, I personally had a big awakening in the late 70s when suddenly, like, wow, feminism, suddenly all these possibilities. Um, since then, neoliberalism, the media, the media is, you know, constantly being bought up by people who are destructive and even far-right. Let's, let's call them far-right. Let's not go as far as fascist. Um, I, th- I think that joy, you know, it is radical to, to be joyous. And, and, but there's something terrifying about how this, you know, precar- precarity in the workplace, you know, the, the supermarkets and those awful, t- you know, self-service tills that s- spout the same messages constantly <laughs> and sort of noises on the bus. It's almost like we're being, you know, there is this anti-happiness that's being constantly, and, and, you know, I can feel so politically angry, but I'm sitting around a table with friends and I think, but we're all completely happy. I mean, are we secretly the majority do we just need to somehow um how do we fight i how do we fight back how can we possibly mend the sort of the, the fact that corporations own just about everything including the streets and transportation and mm-hmm. all public spaces mm. then should we okay yeah then maybe we should collectivize a few i mean what's changed is it's just so much. It, and almost most things that we wanted, like more resources, more um, money being put into the community, um, the home life being made more compatible with the working working day, the paid working day, exactly the opposite has happened. Exactly the opposite has happened. You know, the state has been undermined and sold off. The um, uh, organisations that have defended people in their jobs have been totally undermined. All this was deliberate... Uh, a policy by Thatcher, and and then the whole ideology of dog eats dog. We you know we must be aspirational or ambitious, and if we want, they're losers. The whole sense of losers was just, you know, that was a hideous word that we would not be using in the nineteen seventies at all. You know, a working class hero is something to be, and for women, you know, free our sisters, free ourselves. It was connection to others. You know, and in particular. You know, to those who were worst off, and so, you know, the, that getting turned on its head is so catastrophic. But what's most catastrophic is how the state can actually now, within a corporate capital world, manage to get those resources back, get sufficient money back. Whether, you know, it's going to be so difficult to uh, get rid of these multinational companies, which are 
um, you know, creating impossible caring conditions for caring workers, bringing in migrant labour, you know, undermining everything. I, you know, all we can do is is work out ways of trying to resist and that, you know, there are very, I don't think there's any one solution, you know, some people will be going into the Labour Party, some people will be in their other different groupings of, you know, women uncut or whatever, and, and that's all, the hope can, and the resistance. Can, can I just follow up with a sort of tail end question to that, which is thinking of new corporations, mm. which are based on the idea yes. of connecting mm. us to yes. each other. I'm thinking mm, about mm, Facebook, for example. Mm, mm. You know, millions on Facebook. Uh -huh. Now, there's all sorts of privacy issues, mm, but I've lost mm. count of the number of people I know who will say, I've gone, I'm going off Facebook because it makes me feel miserable. Mm, because mm. what you're asked to do is be a wire on other people's presented, shaped happiness and success. And that's very much the theme of, of your book. And there's, mm. there's something it sort of relies on atomization mm. and, and actually demoralizes rather than brings together, or does it? I, I don't think there's any one answer to that, actually. I mean, it depends how you manage to work your social media, doesn't it? It also depends on, on the life you have. I think it depends yes. on the life you have. Yes. Um, but um, you know, ideas of cooperation, which are linked to green politics, which are linked to, could be linked to industrial strategy and so on, that you know, it's not ever simply growth that we want. We want green growth. We want you know non-destructive growth. We want to see that care work is absolutely a part of what keeps society afloat. So a totally different language for thinking about everyday life is, is what we have to all be talking about. And of course, you know, when we're firing off on that, we can get quite excited and stimulated. So that's when we can begin to feel all right. What can really happen? That's another question. What is possible is another question. Oh, thank you. A few years back, I was speaking with a colleague from Denmark, mm -hmm. and we were talking about these routine statistics coming out of Denmark about it being the happiest country. Mm -hmm. And and so I was grilling my colleague, and I said, you know, what it, what are you doing? What are you people doing? And uh, and he said, no, no, Zena, you've got it all wrong. It's not that we're happy. It's that we're not particularly ambitious. <laughs> and and I really, you know, that that stayed with me all these years later. And, and I wonder to what extent maybe it's useful not to talk about happiness, but to talk about feeling satisfied with what we have, um, being satisfied with, with having enough, and, and how difficult that might be in, in the context of, of aspiration and ambition in which so many of us find ourselves. Yes. Well, I do think, um, as I said, having a sense of failure and then self-blame from not being top, not being the winners is is one of the most destructive things. However, I think there are other aspects to Denmark and the Nordic countries coming out on top, which is that they're not as inegalitarian as we are, that the state is still creaming off um, a lot of the resources rather than giving it to the 1%. So they are managing so far, although they're very much under attack as well, to um, keep their welfare systems in a better state than we've been able to. They haven't outsourced as much of them. So um, while I think there's something in what you say that it's always, you know, I don't think we can either or should be just satisfied with things because there's so much not to be satisfied with. I mean, you know, dystopias. We didn't talk about dystopias. No, no, we didn't. But, much, but, yeah. but actually the dystopic imagination is everywhere. You know, Jameson says it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Then he says, well, actually, perhaps... 
capitalism is the end of the world, so we don't have to <laughs> imagine them. But, but that is a serious thing. You know, we know it is a serious thing, the level of destruction that's being done to the planet, the environment, and so on. And so, you know, we do have all sorts of reasons to be angry. And almost every, you know, main writer today, films, they're all dystopic, aren't they? Whether it's uh, The Hunger Games, Blade Runner, you know, even the air is being... <laughs> Um, um, rationed, I believe, and violence is everywhere, and the end of the world could be at hand. And so, you know, it's facing that then, how you keep a flicker of hope alive, and you do that together. You do that together. But just thinking about Denmark, that what you'd have there, I would guess, is a different view of the welfare state. The way that we've come to think of the welfare state, and it's both parties have contributed mm -hmm. to it, is that you use the welfare state if you're a failure and if you're at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I, when we were young, mm -hmm. you, you, the welfare state mm -hmm. was part of our collective support yes, for each other. Yes. And mm -hmm. I presume Denmark still has that language of the welfare mm -hmm. state, even if it is mm -hmm. under attack. Mm -hmm. And yeah. just on utopias, mm -hmm. so you know, you've made you make a very good point about the rise of dystopias and the sustained sort mm -hmm. of. It's still mm -hmm. Margaret Atwood, The Handmaid's mm -hmm. Tale, is another mm -hmm. example, a sort of feminist version. Mm -hmm. um, but utopias, it mm. used to be, you know, going mm. back to Thomas More's mm. book Utopia, mm. although it had mm. some very odd suggestions in it, it didn't it? Mean, that, yes. that women who are going to marry men should Show parade them naked. naked. Mm. Mind you, that's a bit like mm. a television program that you, you get at the moment. And the other one is that the punishment for adultery would be lifelong celibacy, which I don't think anybody would be mm. would be promoting now except the Daily Mail. But we don't, we, uh, you, you talk about Owen's community's 19th century ideas of utopia. We don't really have any utopias now. It's like a bit like, um, what was that Fukuyama book? It was the idea that capitalism had won and we were at the end of that. So no, we're, we're short of utopian designs, aren't I, we? I don't think that's completely true. Um, I think um, utopic thinking, like dystopic thinking, comes and goes at different periods. So, you know, at the end of the 19th century, utopian ideas were everywhere. Yeah. Um, um, now, would people are escaping me. <laughs> Robert Owen, <laughs> Robert William, Owen William, Morris, Slater, William Morris, uh, Ruskin, Carpenter, you know, Ruskin. they're all writing oh, yeah. about each other. They're all thinking about how to change the state of labour, how to create you know, what we might call a garden community. So, you know, everywhere that was around. And then, you know, then that goes into retreat for various reasons with industrialisation getting tougher and tougher. Um, and also after um, the... Um, Hitler and and Stalin, you know, dystopia, dystopic thought comes completely to override utopian thinking, and that even wanting a blueprint for the future, whether it was Plato, whether it was Socrates and Plato's world to be ruled by philosophers, or or, or, or Thomas More's, where you know the most intelligent people are in control, or, or or the scientific utopias that come up, you know, that there are always problems with them as blueprints. But what you get today from people writing about still saying some sort of utopian spirit must be kept alive is the notion of partial utopias, practical utopias, those spaces of hope, how we use resources to wherever we are, wherever we can, locally, nationally and internationally, you know, yeah. reaching out to others and, and, and creating different ways of of more egalitarian connecting, different ways of sharing our resources and so on. And you do say, Ruth Levitas, who's mm. one of the great mm. analysts mm. of utopia, mm. says that now a utopia is best expressed as just the 
continuing desire for change rather the than the education of desire, which is what, yeah. what, what of course, Thompson wrote. But then just another couple of thoughts, sorry, is that you talked about after Hitler and Mussolini, there was dystopic thinking. But of course, you know, there's a lot of thinking about Attlee's government and the post-Second World War as a kind of practical utopia. And also the GLC, which I, you know, I'm a woman of my time. If I look at what Corbyn might do, I look back to what Ken Livingston did at the best. I don't know if everybody here would remember that, but, you know, actually subsidised fairs, huge committees looking at women's lives in London. It was great. And we need more. So there, and many there... moments of collective joy. There used to be concerts and, uh, uh, and dances that we'd go to down at the GLC almost every weekend. Can you imagine? Actually. Well, the GLC's now being sold off <laughs> yeah, but it's a hotel. You know, they, they, had, they actually had to abolish those. Thatcher had to abolish yeah, it because no, no. it was Because it was so successful. And are there still challenges? Well, there are. I mean, not just the Occupy movements, which don't never last indefinitely, but the radical cities, the rebel cities that David Harvey and other people write about, where there are ongoing schemes, sometimes beginning with occupations with squatters who then are working with radical architects to create different sorts of buildings or shells of buildings that people then begin to move into, that they're lobbying the councils for. What you got lobbying their local states for more resources or the citizens' movements that came in Spain after the indignados and all those effects of the uprisings in 2011, 2012. So you've got Podemos, but you also got, on a smaller scale, um, citizenship movements that produced Arda Calau in Barcelona. Now there are likely to be setbacks there through the growth mm. of, of Catalan nationalism and so on. So there's, there's never just a linear route but there's always things happening in a zigzaggy way. That and the important have... thing is to find out about them, which mm -hmm. is why your book is, is so important. Now, has anybody got any more questions? Because we should probably be moving to... Hilary Wainwright. It's a bit like being an auctioneer. <laughs> I, can I any advance on Hilary Wainwright? <laughs> so I just wanted to um, explore your idea about um, collective effervescence and linking that to public... <laughs> happiness and maybe thinking about what that could mean practically and um, I don't want to sound like some um, sort of newborn Labour Party member but obviously <laughs> a moment of collective... But that's what you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, but there's a problem so a moment of collective effervescence I'd say was you know the day of the election not just the result but the sort of day of canvassing and find, you know, getting this sense of, of people changing and being able to talk to people you know, and to get this sense that something was going on, something was happening, and doing it collectively, doing it as a group of people, and then coming back, and, oh, I won't repeat it, everybody else has been through this experience. But then then there's a the problem, how is that maintained? So it's really public happiness. I mean, you slightly equated it in the discussion with these moments of public effervescence, demonstrations and so on, but it seems there's a big problem with how do you mm. sort of inst I don't want the word institutionalize immediately sounds rather miserable and boring but how do you embed or how do you reproduce public happiness in an everyday sense and what is the relevance of what we learned in the women's movement about prefiguration has that got some that idea of you know creating everyday feasible utopias that in a way also that gave us a kind of energy which in a sense is related to happiness public happiness to, con to continue to work for those in society so how do we i mean momentum for example does in a funny you know not funny way in a kind of a certain way it does try and create a daily public happiness in in its social relations it's quite caring quite quite sort of joyous in the way that it it 
not always. I mean, probably some people have had really bad experiences, but um, <laughs> a bit like the women's movement. But um, anyway, so how do we maintain and reproduce public happiness? Not easily. That's what you have to say. I, I think, you know, the, I thought that the wilderness years was interesting because it showed actually those left Labour people finding what was important to them and they continued mm. to work around that, the Congo or, 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 or South America and, you know, they would be forming new bonds and ties there and think, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? Well, something that's important to you, you know, for me, peace work in Israel-Palestine has been important. It's led me to make new friends, understand many things better, understand what it is to be of Jewish descent, though many people would disagree with the way in which I do understand it. But um, um, you, you have to just find those spaces you can work in and the people you can work with. It won't be everybody. And you have to try and be as open as possible, as inclusive as possible, which is so difficult. And you have to be as least sectarian as possible. You know, you can't call people who voted for Brexit stupid. You can't call even every Trump voter stupid. You've got to try and say, why on earth would they do that? Why would they do something so stupid? But you have to... <laughs> yeah, Lynn, I think you might be giving that away there. <laughs> but you try and understand and commit. Yeah, their lives have got worse, you know. They have, their, their lives have got worse and, you know, they're not understanding at all. And why would they, you know, how they can have any agency in improving them? And But, but, but what, isn't there a bit of a gap between what Hillary's asking and your answer? Because you're talking about how do you keep a hope alive and keep yes. on keeping with what you believe in. Keep communicating. Yeah, and, and Hillary, in a way, if I understand it, is asking a question about what do you do when you get to a point of success and you're reaching kind of the state and you may achieve. How do you... That will never, that will never be a permanent state. Never, never. I mean, it can't be, can it? You can't just be in a state of success. No, but I mean, <laughs> I think there's. I think, I think, arguably, Jeremy Corbyn's election near win yeah, is the biggest state. Of, yeah, mm. but I mean, that's really what I felt. Your question was, how do we keep? Yeah. Um, with difficulty, from, by with finding difficulty. what we're able to keep working on, to keep relating to people, to you know, to keep a group around us, as well as have our solitary presence. Pleasures. <laughs> Listen to you the keep music returning to your to. solitary pleasures. You have to tell me what they are later. Uh, <laughs> okay, so we have another a question here. Kind of on from what you were saying um, about Trump supporters, etc. The examples of collectiveness that we've had have been around like one group united against another. Mm. Um, and the obvious example of collectiveness where across group divides is like religion, but now, mm. you know, in a more secular society, what could this collectiveness look like that does unite different groups of people mm. and, yeah, kind of bridges mm. these divides mm. and isn't just mm. us against mm. them and mm. that's what kind mm. of then we feel this joy because we've defeated mm. you, etc. Yes. <laughs> Is, is, is that another way of saying that? Could, could Lynn, could you work with the sort of centre-right? That's another way, isn't it? I'm just, just being a bit naughty there. Sorry. Well, there is compass, I have. God, if you call compass the centre-right, you are a left-winger. No, sorry, could you answer that? Uh... I think it's something about how you create and maintain some sense of community. And people are interested in that, just like people are interested in education and they're interested in health issues you know they're interested there are many ways in which you can talk across barriers and across 
political differences. And I, you know, I'm now in the Labour Party, and that is what we try to do. You know, take up an issue that will be seen as important. You know, what's going to happen to Holloway Prison? Does it just go to the developers to create you no know, housing for the rich, or can it be used as a community resource? That that is a sort of struggle where I think you can unite people mm. across differences, and you know, and also try to be as least sectarian as possible. You know, knowing that we don't, of course, we don't have the answers, which is why no, moments are never successful forever. You know, we, we don't have we don't have an adequate industrial strategy. We don't have an adequate health policy. Education policies, you know, we're we're all you're talking about Labour now, or We're talking about yeah. Labour. Sorry, we yeah. now for me yeah. and the Labour Party, you know, we don't have it, and you know, we're all working on it and working on it together, and that means a lot of outreach work, a lot of listening and moving forward, having listened and discussion, and and it's not easy. <laughs> no, the issue I wanted to uh, ask about was about cultural uh, relationship to mm. happiness because mm. what strikes me enormously when you're watching television things is the way that if you're in a soap opera, anybody who's happy, you know that perfectly well they're heading for a total personal disaster. <laughs> and that uh, happiness, you know, if you look at the images of happiness, they try to project it around, you know, strictly tum dancing, you know, there's kind of radiant images of happiness. But every single thing is turned around a competition. Yes. There isn't a single aspect of human experience, whether it's making drawings, watercolours, <coughs> cooking, any kind of human experience is now just mm. turned into a competition. So around the ideas of these shared happinesses, as really most people fail, because actually there's only one winner. Yes. And every single thing, when you can think about football too, or everything's turned into a competition of an extreme kind. So the... the, the uh, gap between success and failure is the whole thing being played on all the time. And that seems to me a hugely important cultural force. And, the th and I remember when I first saw The Apprentice, I thought, this is a ghastly, ghastly, ghastly program. And now we have the President of the United States, a product of an apprentice, of a, of a, of a TV show. And so what I'm interested is whether you actually, I haven't read your book, Lynn, mm -hmm. yet, but whether in fact you take on board this incredibly prevailing competitive uh, or urge to turn every human experience into a competition. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank yes, you. Yes, I think it's catastrophic. I mean, and I don't think it's inevitable either. You know, I, I think that um, what has happened with the privatisation of public spaces, like if we think of concerts or festivals today, you usually have to pay to go there and pay a lot of money actually to get to the Isle of Wight. Or you know, there's only some spaces, some of the museums and so on, which which actually are very popular. I mean, the Tate Modern, for instance, has proved very popular, hasn't it? Some people are critical of its populism, but you do get people going there all the time. I mean, there are. You know, it's important to stress that actually what makes us happy can be shared. It can be shared. And I believe there's an exhibition at the V&A that I haven't seen yet about opera power and, and, um, and other things, power, poli <laughs> power politics and culture, about how opera changes in different moments. First it was only available to the upper class, then to the middle class, and then after the French Revolution, after the Russian Revolution. And if we saw any of those Russian Revolution um, exhibitions about the first year just in 1917 and we know that the anniversary is tomorrow actually of that those first nine months all that was happening there when people were 
literally trying to create things that joined one person with another. So, you know, the designers of fashion are trying to design these uh, fabrics that are circular and so on. So when they're standing by somebody else, then the circles unite or they're, you know, they're thinking, how do we connect with others? Yeah, we, we've so lost that. And yet, I think it could come back because I think it has been there before. It has been around and can come around. But, um, you know, that we've had 35 consolidated years of sweeping that aside as, as, you know, as violently as it could be swept aside. Well, Lynn, I think we should stop there. I think, okay. I think you've been brilliant. Okay. There okay. is just one thing about laughter. Laughter. You do, I oh, yes. couldn't find the quote. I yes. was looking for it. But some, one of the many theorists you quote says something about laughter is either the... The powerful oh, yes. hate laughter yes, or something yes. like that. Putting people down or Oh, there's different <laughs> kinds of laughter. Yes, there's joyful laughter and satirical laughter, yeah. which is an awful thing yeah. and probably is on a lot Might of programs. Might be hard to sustain, of course, that difference. But right? what I really want to do is I love laughter and I think there's nothing. If I, When I'm dying, if I drown, what I will remember is laughing with my friends or laughing, you know, as as one does sometimes in groups. And I think that's great. So I don't want to end with a laugh at you. And it is contagious. Yeah. And it is contagious it is. too. So. And it's, it is, you know, a kind of radical happiness of the many we talked about but my main wish is to say thank you Lynn for writing a great book and for this evening it's been thank brilliant you thanks such a lovely reader thank you all thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event for more visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes